Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. All right, I'm so excited for you all to hear this final episode that will conclude the series. This is Topic 3, Sacred Ground Part 2 of Series 5, People of the Island. Please make sure to listen to Part 1 of this episode. Also, Topic 1, The Evilisms, and Topic 2, The Long Journey, Parts 1 and 2. I'm calling this series People of the Island because that is what Wyandotte, um, that's what it means in their language. Um, also, I actually want to note that their traditional tribal name is actually Wandot or Wendat, but uh, Wyandot is the English version of it, and I'm sticking with Wyandot because that's what they go by now. Before we begin, I also want to make clear that these episodes are in no way a history of these people. I am not the authority on their history. They are their own authority, which is phenomenal. But I had the opportunity to share their story, and I had the opportunity to speak with Second Chief Louisa Libby of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas in order to allow her to tell her own story and the story for people. That episode has been available to my patron supporters for a few months now, but on June 1st, 2022, is going to be available to everyone forever. Um, I can see myself doing this again in the future, having a patron episode that will be available to everyone, but it goes to my patrons first. So if you are interested in becoming a patron member and getting early access to these episodes or access to episodes that are only available to patrons, I will have all of that information at the end of the show. Oh, sorry, where was I? Um... Also want to give out a content warning for this series. I'm not gonna get graphic, but there are discussions of slavery, genocide, and other tangential subjects which are maybe difficult for some. Alright, a quick recap. So the Wyandotte Nation traveled from Kansas to Oklahoma in 1842. Uh, the land that they promised was not there, so they bought land from the Delaware in 1843. And the first thing they did was establish a cemetery. As you do, apparently. <laughs> um Sorry, beginning in 1890, everybody and their brother wants to buy this land. Uh, the Oklahoma tribe, because they had split, was like, yeah, we need the money, do it. Folks in Kansas are like, no, no, this is ours. Uh, in 1906, it becomes very um, serious, very intent. Secretary, Secretary of the Interior excuse me, is like, I will do this. And the Connolly sisters say, no, you won't. Um, they end up going all the way to Supreme Court to argue the case, ah, but they lost, which really sucks. However, that loss was um, later beneficial because it caught the attention of a senator from Kansas who passed the law in order to preserve its status. Okay, here we go. So the Department of the Interior still really wants this land. Quote, in 1916, the cemetery received congressional funding for preservation as a historic site and was placed in the care of the Haskell Institute, now the Haskell Indian Nations University, end quote. It's more protected than it was. It's still not entirely protected. 
Finally, um, skipping way ahead, in 1946, Lida died. Except she didn't just die. She was actually murdered as she was walking home from the library Waitland night. Some rando who was never caught hit her over the head with a brick or a stone. And, I mean, they just wanted to rob her, but she had, like, no money on her. She had, like, a dollar on her. So, it's just, it's a really tragic death that even today, um, the one dots are upset about. And I am upset about it, too, because she did so much. And, you know, even if she hadn't fought for the cemetery in, in the way that she did, I mean, no one deserves that. It's just wrong. Ida passed two years later, and Helena died another ten years after that. All three of them were buried in the cemetery alongside their family. So, I don't think I actually did a great job of telling the story about all three sisters. Uh, it's kind of mostly about Lida, but the other two were really important as well. I mean, it wasn't just her. It was all of them were working for it. And I'm really sad for them. I'm sad that they didn't get to see that the fruits of their labor pay out in their lifetime. Because, like I said a minute ago, you know, it's got congressional funding to be uh, saved as a historic site. Um, it's under the care of the Haskell Institute. But there's still always the chance that they'll change their mind and they'll sell it. Until, that is, 1971, which is, uh, let's see here, 46, 48, 58. Um, almost 20 years. It's like 15-ish. I suck at math. Years after uh, the Helena died, it's finally placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's finally safe forever. And then, furthermore, in 2016, it was designated a National Historic Landmark. Alright, and here's why this episode had to be broken into two. Or this topic had to be broken into two. So as I was originally thinking about this episode and the story and how to tell it, a question revealed itself to me. How often does something like this happen? How often is a cemetery threatened in this manner? Going way, way back. During the Roman Empire and the, uh, sorry, the Roman Republic, which is even earlier, and then the early empire, cemeteries were established outside of city bounds. Um, and I'm not sure when the transition occurred exactly. I think definitely by the Middle Ages, Europeans were burying their dead in church cemeteries. That practice was brought over with the colonists, and it continued until a little after the American Civil War. It's really funny to, way, to me the way that um, science and medicine and what we understand about our world ebbs and flows. But essentially, broadly speaking, ancient Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians had extremely advanced knowledge of medicine and hygiene. Now, they had plenty of snake oil medicine, fake medicine. Um, but they knew that you were supposed to wash your hands and they knew how to perform surgery. And again, very broadly speaking, that knowledge was, quote, lost during the, quote, Dark Ages, which is a completely incorrect moniker, and it really needs to be removed from our general understanding of history. It's a completely different topic. But for several hundred years, people didn't understand what caused disease and pandemics. They were just like, dude, you got ghosts in your blood, which is a really funny meme about the plague. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. 
Um, so you had millions of people catching yellow fever and measles and whatnot and dying for, you know, a couple hundred years. And in the Civil War, like, we didn't know, hey, you were just working with a guy trying to, I don't know, cut off his leg. And now with your bloody hands, you're going to go work on another guy. Like, even then, they didn't know you need to wash your hands. So that's why I say that the, this knowledge ebbs and flows, and it's so interesting. And this is all a very, very roundabout way to get on to the fact that after the Civil War, practice changed back to we're going to place the cemetery outside of city bounds because we're afraid that... Um, once you die, your body will just release all this poison and, and, quote, badness into the air, and that's how you get sick. They're not really right, but um, then again, you also, you know, you do need to keep dead things away from things that you're going to eat. So they were almost right. Um, and so just continuing this real fast, they came to this conclusion of, Dead people equals bad things in the air because uh, we had a population boom post-Civil War and this massive migration. I mean, people are moving um, to the West. People are moving North. And uh, Kansas City booms. I mean, we grow exponentially because of this expansion. Um, but there was also um, several, actually, widespread diseases at that time. Lots of people were dying and that so they were like, oh, it's, it's that person, the dead guy that's sitting there um, lying there really in your backyard. It's his fault. Oh, people are funny. Anyways. Anyways. Um, so after a couple years, cemeteries being on the outside of the city, but because we're still growing, the city bounds move to include the cemetery and then move past it. I have seen this within my own lifetime. Um, in my hometown, we have the Mount Olivet Cemetery, which is out on Eisenhower and DeSoto. And until I was in high school, there was absolutely nothing else out there. I mean, I think maybe a couple of homes, but they were still not like right next to it, you know? They were like down the street. Um, now we have a gas station and a grocery store and a church directly across from the cemetery. And we have a Walmart that's like half a mile down the road. Um, bringing this back around to my original question. Okay, so how often is the land that a cemetery sits on contested? How often is it threatened by development? So I knew from grad school, and I'll get into this later uh, in deeper detail in a moment, that, you know, if you're developing land for infrastructure, um, particularly roads, that lane has to be surveyed ahead of time, and if you find something of a historical or uh, cultural significance is um, found and identified, or if you happen to be doing construction um, on, say, a parking lot, and you find... Um, and <laughs> all I ever heard was, please don't let there ever be a human bones, right? Um, if there's a grave, work stops. It is, like, really, really bad. They don't ever want to find that when they're doing the um, surveys. But when, when stuff like that is identified, CRM crews, cultural resource management crews, go in and they excavate it so that it can be saved and then construction can begin. So I was like, all right, well, this is 
um, a known location of something of significance. You know, it's a cemetery. But I couldn't find anything about specifically my question. Um, everything I was finding was talking about, you know, what I just said, CRM. So I ended up reaching out to the Kansas State Historical Society, and Dr. Robert Horde, the state archaeologist, was kind enough to answer my inquiry. He said that today, established cemeteries are rarely threatened, and, quote, if there is a threat, these projects probably would have come under public and legal scrutiny, and provisions would have been made to avoid the cemetery or have the graves relocated, end quote. But, he said that rural cemeteries, family cemeteries on private land, are much more likely to be threatened because farmers often just, they want to make as much use of their land as possible, and it's really common for them to remove the graves and just go at it. Um, but it's now, and I'm uncertain the, the date that this law was passed because he didn't say it, but it is now illegal to do so. So, um, those private cemeteries are legally protected. But then again, if you don't know, uh, like not you, if you, not if you don't know the law, but like if you don't say nothing and nobody else knows, then you could probably get away with it. Not that I'm recommending it. To be um, very specific, I'm not recommending that. Please do not do that. Because, you know, I can't even imagine being that person who's like, I need to farm this land so bad that I'm just going to dig up and throw away my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. Because it's not like I can dig them up and then go to a cemetery and be like, I need to rebury this dude. That's not going to fly. Um, my inquiry was also answered by Patrick Zollner, the director of the cultural... Uh, sorry, I just lost my notes. One second. Ooh, doo -doo -doo -doo. The director of the cultural resources division of the Kansas State Historical Society. And he directed me to a couple of web pages um, on their website, which discuss preservation law, and so I will have links to those sites on my website. Now, the thing that I knew about from my studies was NAGPRA, and this is what I hinted at a few moments ago, and I want to talk about. The Native American Graves Repatriation Act uh, was passed in 1990, and, you know, as I was reading up on the story, I just couldn't help thinking, if we had passed it sooner... Um, how much easier it would have been for the sisters to protect this land. But, oh, it is what it is, and several reasons why it didn't get passed until the 90s. But, quote, NAGPRA requires federal agencies and institutions to receive federal, or sorry, that receive federal funds, including museums, universities, state agencies, and local governments, to repatriate or transfer local American human remains, um, let me try all that again, to repatri repatriate, there you go, or transfer Native American human remains and other cultural items to the appropriate parties by consulting with lineal descendants, Indian tribes, and Native American organizations on Native American human remains and other cultural items. Protecting and planning for Native American human remains and other cultural items that may be removed from federal or tribal lands. Identifying and reporting all Native American human remains and other cultural items in inventories and summaries of holdings or collections. And giving notice prior to repatriating or transferring human remains and other cultural items. Okay. Essentially, if you are a museum... 
a university, local government, if you receive federal funding to keep your institution running, you are now required to assess your collections, identify Native American human remains and other significant cultural items, contact the appropriate parties and return it to them. Or if the appropriate parties contact you, return it to them. All right. Okay, so there are two major parts to this law. One, quote, cultural items means human remains, associated funerary objects, unassociated funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. Human remains means the physical remains of the body of a Native American of a person of Native American ancestry. Funeral object means an object that, as part of the death rite or ceremony of a culture, is reasonably believed to have been placed with the individual human remains, either at the time of death or later. Funerary objects may be either associated or unassociated. Sacred object means a specific ceremonial object which is needed by traditional Native American religious leaders for the practice of native of traditional Native American religions and by their present-day adherents. Object of cultural patrimony means an object having ongoing historical, traditional, or cultural importance central to the Amer Native American group or culture itself, rather than property owned by an individual Native American, and which therefore cannot be alienated, appropriated, or conveyed by any individual regardless of whether or not the individual is a member of the Native American tribe or Native Hawaiian organization, and such objects shall have been considered inal inalienable by such Native American group at the time the object was separated from such group. End quote. It's a lot of words. <laughs> and part two, anyone convicted of, quote, sells, purchases, uses for profit, or transports for sale or profit of the human remains of a Native American, or sells, purchases, uses for profit, or transports, transports for sale or profit any Native American cultural item obtained in violation of NAGPRA, end quote, will be imprisoned and or fined. Federal grants are available to help support the documentation, consultation, and repatriation required by this law. So, again, to simplify it, um, you're required to assess your collection, you're required to identify who it belongs to, and give it back to them. The things that you have to give back are human remains, funerary objects, and those can be associated or unassociated, which I have not um, explained the difference because it's very negligible. Sacred objects and objects which are not specific to that individual, but they have significance to the tribe as a whole. Secondly, if you sell any of these objects, if you purchase any of these objects, or if you transport them and you're caught, which I hope y'all are, because this is kind of ongoing, um, you're going to be imprisoned and or fined. One of the major criticisms of Nagbrooks, there's actually several, I know it sounds good on the surface, but hang on, we're going to get into it. One of the major criticisms is that this only applies to individuals who have managed to trace their ancestry. So if 
uh, say I am a member of a tribe and I come forward and I say, hey, that item um, or that skull belongs to or is my great, great, great so-and-so father and here I have the proof. I can get it back, right? But that's only if I am able to prove that we are related. You know, these documents might not have survived or these documents might never have been written down. It's really hard to trace ancestry, um, especially if you are Native American. Second, um, it only applies to tribes who are federally recognized. This is something I talked about in my previous episodes. The Wyandot Nation of Kansas is not federally recognized. So if they were like, hey, Museum X, you have item X in your collection and it's sacred, we want it back, there is no legal mandate by Museum X to return it to them because the tribe is not federally recognized. Um, I would argue they still have an ethical mandate, but, you know, museums don't always agree. Example A, the Elgin Marbles. Totally unrelated, but please look it up. The Oklahoma tribe could say, hey, we are federally recognized, we want that back. Another critique, and this was really surprising to me, actually, is that the Smithsonian, America's foremost historical and cultural institution, is exempt from this law. And I did not remember that particular tidbit from my classes, but apparently there was an amendment added in 1996, so six years after NAGPRA became law, that exempted the Smithsonian. And what the hell, right? I mean, if I worked at a museum with Native American remains and I didn't support NAGPRA, I'd be like, well, they don't have to, so I don't either. But the most difficult and contestable, I think contestable is the word that I want to use, um, but the most controversial or source of controversy within this law is actually the law itself. It's the language, it's vocab and terminology. Some of it's really vague. Um, it's vague enough to be argued over and create extensive legal battles. Example A, the Kennewick Man, which I did study in class. Um, again, totally unrelated, but if you're interested, please look it up. For all its faults, NAGPRA is still arguably a pivotal piece of legislator uh, legislation. There we go. Um, and I can't imagine what museums would be like today if we didn't have it. But it needs a lot of work. That will be the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me as we explore the history of the Wyandotte National Burial Ground and the history of the Wyandotte Nation. As a reminder, this is the final episode in this topic, and I will be taking a break from researching, writing, and producing another series for the summer. Um, I will continue to take adventures and produce a few minisodes, and I will create a few patron episodes. But um, I really I need to cut a few things off my plate, and so just going to take a temporary step back from this. A lot of my sources um, are available online. The Kansas City Public Library, um, that's the Missouri Kansas City Public Library, has a webpage on um, the life of Lida, as does Clio.com. There is um, a 
video on YouTube of um, John Nichols and Ty Edwards talking about this topic, which I will link to on my website. Um, there's also a recording. I, th I think I, I feel like I saw a recording um, featuring the principal chief, Judith Mantheth, at the cemetery. I'm going to look for that again, see if I can find it. And if I can, I'll post that on the website. You can read the original National Register Historic Properties application on the Kansas State uh, Historical Society website. There is an updated version, which uh, Patrick gave me access to um, as a part of my research, which I appreciate. Thank you, Patrick. Um, that has not been added to the website, but you can read the original from the 70s. Yeah, 71. Um, so links will include the original application. Oh, there is a tour. Okay, here we go. I have that listed in my links. A tour of the burial ground given by Principal Chief of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas, Judith Manthe. Um, also, the Kansas state laws regarding unmarked burials and preservation. And a link to NAGPRA. If you have enjoyed this, I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. And if you do that, you will receive a shout-out on every episode and social media post. So thank you, Bjorn, Joan, and Gina, for your support. I appreciate y'all. You'll also receive access to exclusive episodes, such as the one featuring... Excuse me, such as the one with um, Chief Libby. Um, others include... I've, I've talked with the directors of Clama. Um, which is the Gay and Lesbian Archives of Mid-America. I've talked to the director of the Wendat County Historical Museum with the Johnson County Historical Museum. Um, talked with a couple of historians. Or archivists, actually. Anyways, um, you get access to those episodes, and I love all those conversations. They're very cool. And then you get to hear somebody else besides me talking. Um, and lastly, if you become a Patreon supporter, you receive... Something from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. Or, if you cannot commit to a monthly donation, you can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. If you are a one-time donator, you don't get access to the bonus episodes and you don't get an item from the merchandise store, but I will give you a shout-out on the next episode. And if you um, donate on Ko-fi... 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change. If you can't support me, which is cool, I get it. I mean, inflation is high, you know, money's tight. You can still support me by following me and subscribing to my Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr accounts. I also have a YouTube channel. Rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And just, you know, share with your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whoever, um, about the podcast if you're enjoying it. Get them to listen to. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And on my website, you can sign up for my newsletter. Once a month, you'll get an email that says, here's what's going on, here's what's new. It's just a good way to stay updated with the, web, the uh, podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or slide into one of my DMs. Uh, for merchandise, you can go to zazzle, Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com. 
slash store slash homegrown underscore Casey underscore store. You can also find that link on my website. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. She designed it and drew it all herself. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as intro and outro music of the show. They are a local band from Lawrence, Kansas. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Thank you to you, listeners. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Seem to get you off my mind